Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. Today we begin our study in 1 Corinthians. We're calling this series uh, Saints Together. And I'm excited to, to dig in, to, to, to go deeper. I think this series is going to stretch us a little, and that's a good thing. We've been praying for these next several weeks that God would use this series in a mighty way, and His Word would pierce our hearts, and the Spirit of God would, would move in us. As we make our way through this book of 1 Corinthians, I want to encourage you to uh, grab a scripture journal. And so they're at the uh, Welcome Center if you haven't yet picked one up. This would be a, a helpful uh, kind of uh, assistant to you as you make your way through this, is to write down some notes in the margins and circle things, underline. should be a great tool uh, for us. If you're kind of new to the Bible, the, the Bible is separated into the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the promises and the prophecies that are leading up to a Savior, a Messiah, Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the gospels of Jesus Christ, the good news of his, his birth, his life, and culminating in his death and his resurrection from the grave. And then the next book after the gospels is the book of Acts. And it records how the Holy Spirit came upon these new believers and they began to share this message of Christ crucified and risen all over uh, the world. And one of those men who came to faith in Jesus uh, was the Apostle Paul. He was actually opposing Christians when, when God came after him. And, uh, and saved him. He was converted on the road to Damascus and never to be the same. And God commissioned the Apostle Paul to plant new churches in the cities in the known world at that time. And one of those cities was Corinth. And so this is a real letter written for real people facing real problems. And it's important to see the Bible in its historical context. In fact, when the first audience becomes our first priority, our first concern, we'll begin to see the Bible differently. Look at this diagram up here. Let me show you what I mean. When we look at passages of Scripture through the historical context in which they were written, we begin to see new insights, and they begin to excite us because we can see how we are also uh, tied in with those believers all the way 2,000 years ago. This Bible is still living and active. God is still speaking to us through the scriptures, and so we're excited to begin this series. Well, I got to visit uh, the ancient city of Corinth about three years ago, along with some special people who happen to be here today, my mom and dad. Why don't you guys just wave? Yeah. My parents are here today, and so uh, three years ago, uh, they invited me and paid most of the way uh, for me to go uh, to Greece and to see Paul's uh, missionary journeys to these cities, and one of them was this fascinating city of Corinth. So you can get a little picture. I got my little handy uh, clicker here. Uh, so here's ancient Corinth. As you come into the city, you're, you're met with this amazing uh, temple to uh, the, the Greek god Apollo. And so if you remember your Greek mythology, he was the son of Zeus. And so therein lies the idolatry of the city. And so today what I want to do is I want us to understand some of the history, 
uh, some of the geography and the archaeology of this ancient city. And my hope is that this will open up this book for you in new ways so you can then apply it to your life. And so I have two goals today. First one is this. I want to introduce you to the city of Corinth and why it was so important. And number two, I want to show you Paul's vision for the church in this city and how it's our vision as well. And so if you're taking notes, here's the first big question I want to ask. Why was Corinth such a significant city? Four reasons. Here's the first one. Its location made it prosperous. Its location made it prosperous. And so let me kind of show you a little bit of the world that we're somewhat unfamiliar with. We, we don't really think about this area of the world. But you can see Spain, France over there, Italy, you recognize that as the boot there. And then there's Turkey on this side, and there's Greece kind of right in the middle in the Mediterranean Sea. And to the south is this city of Corinth. Another view, more of a global view, you can see kind of Greece is separated into a northern and, and southern, the Greece mainland, and then what's called the Peloponnese in the south. And so the city of Corinth is on this isthmus, this land bridge that connects northern and southern Greece. And so this was a strategic location. And for years, people tried to build a canal that would connect those two bodies of water. You think about it, in ancient days, there were ships that needed to pass through to get to the Roman world. And if they had to travel all around the Peloponnese, that was an extra 250 miles, and so they needed a shortcut. The other reason was that boats, uh, they didn't want to go around the south because there were treacherous northerly winds that were coming at them, and so a lot of times there were shipwrecks if they would make that trip. And so this was a crucial area. And so what happened back in ancient Corinth is they actually made it so that they could drag these boats across this isthmus on land uh, to provide a shortcut. And if they were too big, they still had to travel around. They dropped their cargo off there. And so while they waited, while these sailors were there, uh, they engaged in all kinds of activities. Some immoral activities, as we're going to see. The ships had to wait in line, and so they spent a lot of time here, and they spent a lot of money here. So this became kind of the crossroads of the Roman world. This was a port city that many people passed through, either to go from north to south or from east to west. And so it became a really important city, a center for trade and manufacturing for the Romans, Greeks, even Jews were part of the culture here in Corinth. This was a large uh, melting pot because of its location. Later on, there was a canal uh, that was built. You can kind of see uh, that straight line uh, from, from that view, and let me show you a closer up view here. So there's the Corinth or the Corinthian canal that we got to uh, visit and take pictures of, so it's really steep at sea level there, pretty, pretty narrow for boats to pass through, but it's very convenient now today. It was built back in the 1880s and 90s, 1880s and 90s by the French. So back in ancient Corinth, though, uh, while they were there in the city of Corinth, there was what was called the Agora. And this was the marketplace where there were all kinds of shops, uh, kind of an ancient um, outdoor mall, uh, so to speak. So many different shops. And Paul, when he arrived in the city, he met two uh, Jews, former Jews, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers by trade. 
which mean they were leather workers who, who made tents. And Paul had that same trade, and so he lived with them for a while in probably something that looked like this. This was their shop and where they lived. And so all told, there were probably about 45 shops or so in this Agora area. So it was a thriving, prosperous city. Some think up to 100,000 people lived there back in Paul's day. And so that's the first reason why this city was so significant. Its location made it prosperous. Secondly, its setting made it safe. Its setting made it safe. We don't think about this in our day. We don't get concerned about warfare. But back in this day, a city on a hill made it defensible uh, from the enemies. And so part of uh, what uh, you see in Corinth off in the distance there is what's called the Acro-Corinth uh, which meant the upper city. So not only was there the Agora, there was the Acrocorinth, where there were lots and lots of people and lots and lots of temples up there that provided a way of escape and safety when enemies were attacking. They could flee up to the Acrocorinth and find safety there. It was about 2,000 feet above uh, sea level, above the surrounding city below. Some of you might remember in your Greek mythology the name Sisyphus, uh, supposedly a king in Corinth who was punished by being forced to roll a boulder up this uh, for eternity. That was his punishment, uh, by the way. So Greek gods were all over the place, a lot of idolatry, uh, temples at the top of this Acrocorinth in the high places were a source of safety for the people as well. They believed in that. Also, uh, this Acrocorinth at the top, there was a clean water source, actually a spring that was there for very many centuries that provided water uh, for people to make it a livable place. That's what was an important part of a city back then. You built it around a water source. And so the setting is what made this a safe place, and that was another way of why Corinth was a significant city. There's another view of the Acrocorinth, and I'll talk a little bit more about uh, the temples up there in just a minute. So why was Corinth a significant city? Location made it prosperous, setting made it safe. The third reason, it was home to the Ithmian Games, the Ithmian Games. Most of us here have heard of the Olympic Games, uh, which happened every year in Greece, but this was the Ithmian Games that happened every other year in the city of Ithmia. And so this was in honor of the sea god, Poseidon, and it took place in 51 A.D. So Paul was coming into the city right around 50 A.D., and he probably would have attended uh, the Ithmian Games. And so here's a, a picture. You can see some uh, ancient bleachers back then. Uh, foot races and wrestling and boxing and discus and javelin and long jump and chariot races all were part of the Ithmian Games. And I, I found this little video um, this was actually online. We didn't see this part of it, but um, this is how a foot race would occur. And so take a look real close. This was the starting gate. Isn't that cool? That's how they started. So the, the wooden blocks would drop and they were off um, onto their foot race. So every athlete back then would also take an oath, and if they didn't abide by this oath, they were disqualified, which was, I think, how Paul made this analogy when he spoke about 
our race as Christians in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, these Ithamian games, goes into strict training, and they would. They would just train uh, for these races. And they do it to get a crown that will not last. It was more of a perishable crown made of, I think, salary at times. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So Paul was looking at these athletes and seeing how they were training. He said, that's the way that we need to run this Christian life toward the finish line and not be disqualified for the prize. Now, Paul, as people would stream into the city to watch the games, he was, as I said, a tent maker by trade. And as these athletes were there and the spectators were there, uh, there was a need for them to, to stay somewhere. And there weren't a lot of permanent dwelling places. And so Paul, along with probably Aquila and Priscilla, would be making these tents that they could stay in, tents made of leather that they could stay in while they um, were there for the Ithmian Games. And so this was a golden opportunity for Paul to reach many people with the gospel. This was always on his mind. So it's like when we go to athletic events, is that on our minds? Are we thinking about, look at all these people who need Jesus? It's not wrong for us to cheer for our team and be involved, but for Paul, man, he took that as an opportunity to reach people with the gospel. Paul went to where people were, and he made bridges into their lives. And so, why was Corinth such a significant city? Its location made it prosperous. Its setting made it safe. It was home to the Ithmian Games. And then fourthly, it was a destination for religious pilgrims, a destination for religious pilgrims. So a lot of temples to pagan gods back in Paul's day. The most famous in the city of Corinth. We couldn't visit this because it was on top of the Acro-Corinth. It was the temple of Aphrodite, Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love and sex. So at the top of the Acro-Corinth, overlooking this city, was this temple uh, built in her honor. Now, historians believe that there were up to a thousand temple prostitutes sacred prostitutes working this area, male and female prostitutes. And it was considered an act of worship to this goddess, Aphrodite, to have sex with one of them. And so the city became synonymous with immorality. In fact, there was even a verb, Corinthianize, which meant to live a life of immorality. So, so many... So many uh, temples, and no wonder Paul uses this temple language all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're going to read through it and we're going to study it together, we're going to see this word temple uh, all throughout. And then, of course, um, there's this temple to Apollo, but before we talk about that one, there's another one, and we, we didn't get to see this when we were there, but there was a temple um, back in the day, and it was kind of somewhat of a hospital, an ancient hospital. I know some of you guys work at uh, our hospital here. Back then, there was no modern medicine for healing our ailments, and so there was a god of healing, right? And so here's what they would do. 
Let's say that my, uh, my leg is really bothering me, like I'm just really hurting and my leg needs help. You would go to this place where you would get a leg, <laughs> All right? and it wasn't like a prosthetic leg. These were just legs made out of clay, and you would purchase the leg, and you would bring it to the temple, and you would bring it before this God of healing, and you would offer that saying, would you please heal my leg? So they even had like heads, you know, if you have a headache or whatever it was that was ailing you, that was the belief system. You bring that body part to the temple and you offer that to this God for healing. And I think that's where Paul gets this whole idea of us as a body. He was probably picturing how the people of Corinth were trying as they could to get themselves healed and to have a whole body. And he writes this, if one part suffers... Every part suffers with it. If one part rejoices, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. One other uh, temple, I already showed you a picture of the temple to Apollo, and it's the one that's still um, there in Corinth, and I was having some fun uh, with that one. But originally it had 38 pillars, and uh, now it only has seven that are standing. The temple was destroyed back in 146 BC. It was rebuilt, and then an earthquake uh, took most of it out. But it still uh, sits there as, as you enter into the city, uh, showing the uh, idolatry of this place. All told, there were 26 different shrines and temples in Corinth back in its day, and the city prided itself on being non judgmental. You can worship whatever you want here, whomever you want here. It was a pluralistic city, and this became a sticking point for the Apostle Paul because the church was becoming like the world. So, by way of review, why was Corinth such a significant city? Its location made it prosperous, setting made it safe, it was home to the Ithmian Games, and its destination, it was a destination for religious pilgrims. Now, that's Corinth. And you can see why Paul went there. This was a very strategic place to preach the gospel and to plant a new church. And we pick up the story of what happened while he was there in Acts chapter 18. This is Paul coming into Corinth now on his second missionary journey, and it's around 50 AD. So Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Athens was considered to be the intellectual and cultural capital of the world at that time, even though it was a pretty uh, small city comparatively to Corinth. And so Paul was in Athens, and we got to visit Athens, this next picture here, and it was an amazing place to see. Um, I didn't bring the picture of the Parthenon, but that's one of those you know, big, big um, you know, temples built to the god of Athena. Uh, but back in the distance there, you see this Acropolis, and here, what I'm standing on right there, is what was called Mars Hill, uh, the Areopagus, where Paul was exchanging ideas with the, with the different philosophers of his day. And so this was a, an open-air place where it was kind of, um, people were sharing and exchanging their ideas, and Paul was there preaching and saying, hey, you've got an altar here to an unknown God, let me tell you who that is. And he told them about Jesus. He didn't see a lot of fruit here in the city. And so we asked the question, why would he leave? He wasn't experiencing persecution. It seemed like there was a wide open door here. But I think it was because he knew that Corinth 
was a more strategic location. It was the crossroads of the Roman world. And so he left from Athens and arrived in Corinth. So Acts 18, verses 2 to 4, we see he stayed with Aquila and Priscilla. So it says, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. There was racial tension in Rome, and so they left. And he went to see them, verse 3. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. This was Paul's custom, was to first come into a city, and if there was a Jewish synagogue, he would first preach to the Jews. Why? He himself was a former Jew. So he can identify with their uh, legalism and their law-keeping, and he was going to tell them about the Messiah that they were supposedly waiting for. But we see here in Acts that they opposed him and persecuted him, and so he left and went to the Gentiles in the city. In Acts 18, verse 8, it says, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Pretty incredible. These people who were living in immorality, when hearing the message of Jesus, they believed and, notice, were baptized. If you believe in Jesus Christ, your next step is to be baptized. And so this was happening here in Corinth. It was exciting for the Apostle Paul, but there was, there was some persecution, especially when it came to the Jews. And he was wondering, should I stay here or not? In Acts 18, 9 to 11, it says this, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And so he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And so Jesus himself appears in a vision, reassuring Paul, stay here. I've got many people in this city. And I believe God has many people here in Humboldt who have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here, to reach them with the gospel. So Paul stayed here for 18 months teaching the word, and then he left for Ephesus as Apollos took over. While he was in Ephesus, he began to hear things that weren't going very well back in Corinth. The culture was continuing to pull them in, and they kept living like the rest of the world around them. They were tolerant of sexual freedoms and the license to do what you want with whomever you want. There was this religious pluralism, as I talked about. You can worship whatever you want. No one will judge you. There was also this status and wealth in the city of Corinth. It, it uplifted this pride in what you had and what you did for a living. And in this way, in this way, our current culture is not too different than ancient Corinth. And one of the reasons why this book will be so relevant to us is we can identify with its culture it parallels our secular culture today. Just one quick example. I have a niece, Jamie's sister and her family, they live out in Washington State, so in the Northwest, and uh, they had their first week of school this past week. That's how they roll in the Northwest. And uh, she's an eighth grader, and she came back, and of course, mom and dad are asking, how'd the first day go? Well, in two of her classes, uh, she was asked, you know, kind of in the get-to-know-you time where you're asking, you know, what's your name, what do you want to go by? This was the question that was asked in this eighth grade classroom by one of the teachers, by two teachers. Which pronoun do you identify with? 
which pronoun? He, she, something else? That's happening right now, right? In that area of the country. And before we know it, it's, it's coming here as well. But we ought not to be afraid of the culture. After all, I always kind of laugh when people say, man, things are getting worse and worse and worse. Really? Corinth was pretty bad. But no matter what happens, we have a Savior, and He's commissioned us, just like Paul, to reach this culture. So these new Christians, though, no doubt, they were struggling to live out the reality of their faith, and so do we at times. The secular world was seeping into the church, and it was just easy to kind of go along with the flow of things. And I want to say this. Yes, the church must be in the world, but the world must not be in the church. We are told to be in the world, but not of the world, but we are sent into the world, but the world must not infiltrate the church. And that's what was happening in Corinth, and that's what's happening in our culture today. So how did Paul handle that? I find this interesting. Paul didn't get angry with them. He didn't attack them. No, his tone is one of gentleness and thankfulness as he over and over again points these new Christians to the good news of Jesus and summons them to be who they are in Jesus, to be set apart as God's holy people, to be distinct, to be different, and in so doing make a difference in the lives of the people around them. In other words, Paul gives them a vision. We are saints together. Now, there's a lot in that phrase that we need to clarify because a word like saints can be kind of confusing, right? This is one of the most misunderstood words in our Christian vocabulary. And so for the rest of our time together, I'm going to look at this vision that Paul had for the city of Corinth because it's our vision too. We are saints together, and I pray this vision would, would, would come alive for us over the next several weeks and months. And so, what does it mean to be saints, and how do we pursue that together? Well, let me read the opening verses of this letter to the Corinthians. So if you're not already there, turn to 1 Corinthians. Or if you don't have a Bible with you, just look up there on the screen and back of me. I want to read the very first three verses. This is what's called the greeting of the letter. Sometimes we skip over that, but we ought not to in this case anyway. Because if we do, we'll miss an incredibly important truth about who we are as Christians. So let me read. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes today, let's just walk through this slowly. Verse 1. Paul, called by God, notice, called by God to be an apostle. What is an apostle? An apostle was one who saw the resurrected Christ and was converted and commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel. He was an eyewitness, and so he wrote much of the New Testament. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was written by a man. Breathed out by God himself through the apostle Paul. So that's Paul. Who was this uh, Sosthenes? He was a leader of the synagogue in, in Corinth. And no doubt he heard Paul's preaching and became a believer, was a brother in Christ to Paul, and was later persecuted along with Paul 
uh, in Acts chapter 18. So it says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Verse 2, to the church, to the church. Now, when we think of the church, we think of a building, right? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. See, oh, oh. You know, you remember that when you were a kid. But the church is not a place. In the original language, the word ecclesia meant assembly or gathering. The church is not a place. It's a people, God's people in Corinth. Believers in Christ committed to one another locally. So he's writing to the church. Notice the church of God. The church of God. They belong to God. This is God's church, not Paul's church. And this is not my church. This is not your church. This is God's church. We belong to God. So to the church of God in Corinth. In Corinth. We've looked at this city and its significance But I want you to remember, they were sent here for a purpose. Jesus says, I have many in this city. I want you here specifically. If you are in Humboldt today, if you live here, you are here for a reason. You're here um, for a purpose. You're here for the gospel. You're sent here in Humboldt for a reason. So it goes on to say, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, to those sanctified. Now, what does that mean? That seems like a churchy word. To those sanctified. The word means to be set apart. So he's talking to this assembly, this local church. He's saying, you've been set apart. You're holy. He's talking to normal people like us. You're sanctified. This is Old Testament language, and he's calling us now. He's going to call us later on. You're the place where the the Holy Spirit dwells. You're the temple of God. Because of your union with Jesus Christ, because you trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you're now united to him. You're connected to him and declared holy in God's sight. So this sanctification is both a position and a process. We're declared holy in God's sight, Yet we must continue to make progress in holiness. And notice it happens in Christ, in Christ Jesus. This is not a righteousness or holiness of our own. Paul said in another letter in Philippians, this is not our righteousness, but by faith in him, we're connected to Jesus and his holiness. So verse 2 says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and here comes the phrase, called to be saints together. So there it is, that's 1 Corinthians in two words, saints together. So what does that mean? What do you think of when you hear the word saint? Are you a saint? Nobody's raising their hand. Why? No one wants to raise their hand because most of us think of ourselves as sinners and not saints. And we think of a saint as a really holy person that we could never be like, right? And for some of us, it conjures up images from our church upbringing when we were young. And there were saints that were actually venerated to and prayed to. And so we get a little bit freaked out when we hear this word saints, that, that, that could be me? So I want to take some time to explain this word because over the years, it's caused great confusion. 
It's not a special class of Christians. The word saints is used 40 times in the New Testament. It's always in the plural. There's never a singular saint. Always in the plural, and it's always referring to all Christians. All Christians are saints. Not a select number of super spiritual dead Christians, but all Christians. Normal, average, ordinary, flawed Christians like you and me, we are all saints. Paul loves this word saints. In fact, he never calls them Christians all throughout the New Testament. He calls us saints. Why is that? Well, he's reminding us of our identity, isn't he? It's who we are in Christ. We're God's holy ones. We're set apart for his purposes. And for Paul, becoming a saint had nothing to do with your performance. Pastor Josh prayed it today. We don't come to God because of what we've done. We don't arrive and, and somehow arrive at this sainthood because of all the great things we've done for God. No. According to Paul, being a saint requires just one thing. You must be in Christ. You must have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You must trust him as your Lord and Savior. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So listen, even before you could choose him, he chose you before the foundation of the world, not only for you to be a believer in Christ, but to be holy and blameless before him. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says it this way, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. We have a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So we're chosen by God as believers in Jesus, declared holy and destined to be holy. And it's hard to see ourselves this way. But this is how God sees us now. We're saints. That's his perspective. That's not mine. That's what God says about you if you're a Christian today. You may not see yourself that way, but God does. If we're in Christ, he sees us as saints, and it's his perspective that really matters. After all, having a proper perspective makes all the difference. Imagine for a moment, you're on the receiving end of this letter from your daughter at college. Dear mom and dad, I'm sorry it's taken so long for me to write. I'll bring you up to date on how things are going, but first, you may want to sit down before you read this. Are you sitting down? It's important you sit down. Okay, well, I'm doing pretty well now that the skull fracture and concussion are healing. Not too long after I arrived on campus, my dorm was set on fire, and I had to jump out of my window. My concussion is pretty well healed. I only get those sick headaches once in a while, but I'll be okay. Fortunately, a wonderful guy who rescued me from the fire and took me to the hospital kindly offered to share his little apartment with me until the dorm is rebuilt. He's such a great guy, and we've fallen deeply in love, and we're planning to get married. We haven't set an exact date yet, but it will definitely be before my pregnancy begins to show. Yes, Mom and Dad, I'm pregnant. I know you've always wanted to be grandparents, and I know you'll welcome the baby and give it the same tender care and devotion you gave me when I was a child. In conclusion, now that I've brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I didn't have a concussion or skull fracture. I was not in the hospital, I'm not pregnant, and there is no boyfriend in my life. However, I have failed history and science, <laughs> and I just wanted you to see these results in their proper perspective. 
Having a proper perspective can make all the difference, especially when it comes to God's perspective. And God sees us as saints. And God knows, He knows there's a gap between who we are and what we do, between our position and our practice. He knows we're going to act unsaintly at times. The church of Corinth is a prime example of this. We're going to see in this letter, they were a pretty messed up church with lots of problems. But from God's perspective, they were saints and so are we. Holy ones who are set apart. Yet I want you to know God's saints aren't perfect. We're just average sinful people who love Jesus and we're growing in holiness. We're slowly becoming who we are in Christ. Even Paul was a man in process. He was not perfect, but he pressed on to take hold of who he was in Jesus. He said it this way in Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So so being a saint doesn't mean you're perfect. As we've said before, we're an imperfect group of people clinging to a perfect Savior. But I want to remind you, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. That's your new identity, and you want to become holy. You do. You're not perfect, but you want to press on to become who you are in Christ. Will you struggle with sin in your life? Yes, Will the world seep into your life? Yes. But as a saint, you're aware of it. You're not tolerating it. You're not comfortable with it. In fact, you're even willing to ask others to help you with it because you want your life. Listen, you want your life, you want your home, you want your church to be holy and set apart for God's use. Let me say it another way. This past week, um, so I think it was Sunday, yeah, a week ago, uh, Jamie had heard this scratching sound coming from the air conditioning vent, um, and then it went away, and then I noticed it coming from another side of the room in a different vent. We got closer and, and listened, and I was like, there's, there's something alive <laughs> in our air conditioning vent, and, and, and right away I thought, it's got to be a bat, and, and here's what was happening. The air conditioning vent, I was looking down in there. A little scratching. We moved away from it for a while, and we saw like these little claws, like kind of trying to inch their way up. Bats! I'm looking at Deb. I'm going to embarrass you. I'm sorry, but I had to share this story with these guys, and Deb was there at our staff meeting, and she said, well, those little, little bats, they're kind of scary, but the big ones, they've got those little puppy dog faces. They're kind of cute. And Josh was like, haven't you seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? What are you talking about? So, yeah, man, you should have helped me out. But anyway, so in, in that moment, like, I'm, I'm looking at Jamie. We're just right there. Our kids are gone. And I said, who are we going to call about this? So I didn't have a lot of courage in the moment, to be honest with you. And Jamie, dead face serious, looks at me and says, Johnny. And I was like, Johnny? What? Johnny. If you don't know, Johnny and Emily in their previous house had bat issues, and so Jamie was remembering that, that maybe Johnny has all these strategies and how to deal with the bats. Um, for me, I wasn't as confident in Johnny. I, uh, <laughs> sorry, brother. Um, I texted Michael Vincent, who, uh, if you don't know, he's uh, an officer here. So he uh, texted me back and said, I'm going to send somebody over. Said, yes. 
pays to know people in a small town. So an officer came to our house, and he's like, yeah, we've had lots of bats. You know, this is the season for bats, whatever else. He comes in there, and he's shining his flashlight down there, and there's nothing. Like, you know, right? You're, you're experiencing all of this, and then you bring the, the police officer, and then the bat goes away. So I felt pretty dumb in the moment there. But um, he, he reassured me, and he, he left me a weapon, um, a badminton racket, all right? So he, he left that, and he said, just, you know, let your air conditioning vent just open up the vent, and then when it flies out, you know, just boop, like that, and then you can bring him out. I wasn't having that. I wasn't thinking about doing that. And so he did say, well, if you need any extra help, I'm on call for the rest of the night. So sure enough, like later on, uh, he comes over to another vent and had to be right there. Like I'm hearing this. And so I, I called the police again and he came over this time and sure enough, there, he was not there again. Like he was hiding. It didn't help though. I don't know if I should say this, but he was shining his flashlight and using this, you know, badminton racket, and I was like, you're scaring the thing, you know? Like, he was there, and I was scared. All that to say, he, he finally left, but before he left, he said, just take your vent off so he can get out and, and put, like, a little blanket over your doorway so he can't go onto the rest of your house. He'll stay, you know, isolated to your kitchen, and then just open up your window. And in the morning, he's probably going to be sitting there in your window, and then just open up the door and kind of, you know, shoo him out of there, and you should be fine. <laughs> so we went to bed that night, you know, with a bat in our house, with the vent open, um, not knowing what was going to happen. I wake up in the morning, and I got my racket with me. And I go inside, and I'm looking all over for this thing, and I cannot find it anywhere. It's gone. I don't know where it went. And to this day, we have no idea where that bat went. We, we think it may have left our house, but we're not sure. But I want to say something to you. All that time, we were on high alert, right? Like, this was not comfortable. We were not tolerating a bat in our home. This was not going to corrupt our house. But here's what happens to us as Christians. Guys, listen, we can have bats that seep into our lives, sin, this secular world around us, and we're just kind of getting comfortable with it being there, right? We're not on high alert. We're allowing ourselves to be comfortable with it, even though it's wreaking havoc in our lives. Listen, I was, I was needing some help. Sometimes we'll need help along the way. We're saints together. We need each other in this process of moving toward Jesus in holiness. And sometimes it's not going to be easy. Like I knew that this was probably going to be in the newspaper. <laughs> but that's okay. 111 Fifth Street, call to the police for a bat, you know? But that's all right. It's for a greater purpose. Yeah. So, I want to end on this note. We are saints together. Um, as Paul was looking out over the landscape of the culture around him in his day, man, he saw how easy it was to tolerate a world of religious pluralism and to get comfortable with all kinds of immorality. And yet he was hopeful. Man, he was so hopeful and so am I. He knew that God had a calling for this church and so do we. We have a vision of life and, and living it as saints together. We're called by God to be different and in so doing make a difference. And so we're praying over the next several weeks, what does God want to do in us? 
What does God want to do in you? What does God want to do in me? Would you let his word speak to you, his spirit to move in and through you? I don't know what bats are going to come to the surface in your life and what weapons we need to fight them with and how we need to ask each other for help. But listen, we're here for a reason. Just like Paul was in Corinth, we're here in Humboldt. And so let's be who God made us to be. Let's be saints together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Paul and his vision here that you gave to him for the city of Corinth and for this church. And we pray that as we consider that you've put us here for a reason, that we would want to build your kingdom here and we would be uh, set apart. Um, Even though we're struggling believers in Christ, you have called us to be saints and to make progress and to press on to take hold of what you've already called us to be. And so help us to do that. Give us grace in the process. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.